It's good to be with you this morning. As I was sitting up here, that's not a normal place for a whiff to sit. I think since this building was built, the whiffs have sat at where they're sitting today. As Paul was saying, and as many of you know, I'm with Capital Commission, and I've been with Capital Commission through uh, five sessions of the legislature now, and so it's my privilege this morning to um, both give you an update on Capital Commission as well as uh, bring you a message from the Word of God. And I was noticing there may be a typo. Um, It's Psalm 19, Psalm 19, so if you're wanting to get ready to go there, um, that's where we will end up is in Psalm 19. So what is Capital Commission? Capital Commission exists to give gospel hope and spiritual strength to government leaders. Our key verse, as we have read before, talked about before, is 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 4. First of all, then, I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men, for kings and all who are in authority, so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. A couple brief comments about this verse is obviously it's a call for the church to pray for their political leaders. And this morning, um, we did that. Um, This morning during the Sunday school time, um, those of you that were here uh, took some time uh, to pray for uh, some things that, uh, some prayer requests that I had and for our political leaders. And this the value of doing that is. As Paul is writing this to Timothy, uh, Nero is the emperor of Rome. And so it's not a pleasant time uh, to be a, a Christian and not an easy time. And yet Paul was calling the church uh, to pray for their leaders. And in the context of 1 Timothy, and it's a call for, to pray for the salvation of the lost. And so it's not just a call to pray for political leaders. It is a call to, it is a call to pray um, for all men. But Paul specifically um, singles out political leaders and our need to pray for them, specifically for their salvation. So there are three kind of key words that I use, uh, many state ministers use, to kind of give an understanding of what Capital Commission is. And the first, there are three P words. The first is prayer, and then obviously we, we get that from 1 Timothy 2. So the need for prayer for our political leaders is great. Um, Each year I put out a prayer guide. Uh, I put out a a prayer guide version that's kind of a bulletin insert I know you guys have used in the past. Comes with some prayer prompts as well as a list of all the legislators and constitutional officers in South Dakota. And then I do a, a pictorial guide as well. So I've got, there's a few out on the, in the back on the, on the desk out there. So this is an extended version of that. It has a picture of all the constitutional officers, the Supreme Court, all the legislators in South Dakota, as well as a couple pages of things that you can, um, scripture that you can use to pray for your political leaders. 
So I encourage you to continue, as I know many of you do, that you pray for myself and my ministry, as well as for the political leaders in the state. And praying with and for legislators is a big part of my ministry in Pierce. So I'm in there during session. You know, there are a, a significant number of legislators, constitutional officers, even staff, that I meet with to pray with on a weekly basis. Um, one of those legislators... Um, often greets me. Uh, I could stop by his office, and uh, he, he sees me standing out there waiting, and he says, come on in, pray with me. Right? He is excited to see me, to spend some time in prayer over what's going on uh, during session. Another individual um, has become a dear friend of, of mine, and I look forward each week to, to going to their office as we pray with and for each other. Um, he's been such a support uh, for my ministry. <clears throat> and recently, with the impeachment trial in the Senate, I was able to meet with some people uh, even the weekend before, but the night before the Senate trial and the morning of, uh, to meet with some individuals um, and pray with them as they were about to uh, go through that process, unprecedented process in South Dakota, just praying um, for them and what they were going to uh, encounter, what they were going to go through, how they were going to conduct themselves, uh, that type of thing. And so just praying with a number of individuals uh, in that specific um, circumstance. Another P is presence. The value of being there is underrated. I cannot count the number of times legislators have thanked me for just being there. They'll see me in the hall, they'll see me sitting in the back of a committee meeting or in the gallery during session, and they will tell me later that just seeing you there uh, reminding, reminded me that you're praying for me, that others are praying for us as we do the work uh, of the legislature and how that impacted them and how that um, kind of focused them during that time. Um, one of the ways that I practice the, just the presence of being there, being noticeable in the Capitol, is to greet legislators as they're coming and going from caucus or as they go on the floor for the session to greet them, uh, to remind them that I'm praying for them. And oftentimes, you know, I'll get pulled aside and they'll say, can you pray about this or that that's going on in their life? Oftentimes it is something totally unrelated to government. It's something that they're dealing with at home. They are, they are part-time legislators. It's a full-time job, but you know it's a part-time part -time deal. And they're in peer, and life goes on at home, right? There's uh, children, spouses back home, wherever that may be, that get sick, that have accidents. Um, that, that pass away. And so oftentimes those prayer requests uh, come in. In this last session, there was one individual, um, as I was greeting them, indicated that he wanted to talk to me later. And so between, between his meetings, we kind of talked as we walked and kind of gave me an idea of, of what was going on. And then I was able to then uh, relay some scripture to them. And then he texted me later that that was just what he needed, right? Just that encouragement, that scripture uh, to encourage him. 
And then the, that brings me kind of to the third P, which is the proclamation. So we have prayer, presence, and proclamation. So the proclamation is really uh, the Word of God, right? This is a key component of my ministry. I've had Bible studies in the Capitol for five sessions. And the, the, the last four sessions, I've actually had two studies. Um, there's an early morning study. Um, so this is 7 o'clock, a Tuesday morning. And so we'll have a group of legislators, constitutional officers, uh, staff, lobbyists that attend that study. This last year, with kind of the hectic busyness of the session, that one actually increased in number um, as legislators were trying to find time uh, to come to the Bible study. And so we've been going through the Gospel of John the last five sessions, and and then in the evening, there's a study for just legislators. And so that has, over the years, been kind of the, the main group. That's, there's been a very dedicated group of legislators um, who have been a part of that Bible study for over, over for five sessions now. In fact, there's some of them that I don't think have missed maybe more than a handful of times in five sessions, the, the, the dedication that they have to coming the Bible studies are also written and distributed uh, throughout the capital. So all 105 legislators receive a written copy of the weekly Bible study, and then they are distributed through all the offices in the capital. So I'll go through a couple hundred uh, Bible studies every week. And so this last year, I learned of kind of a, a unique story, one that I wouldn't have guessed was, was happening. And so a secretary contacted me later in the week and said, can you, can you drop off another Bible study? We ran out in our office. And so when I stopped by uh, to, to drop off some extra copies, uh, she informed me that it was for one of the, <clears throat> one of the cleaning ladies that had been uh, going through the office and taking a Bible study and then taking them back to her cellmate. Uh, who was reading them as well, and then sending them to a boyfriend in Hawaii. And so um, my little two-page written Bible study is going global, I guess. Um, so, <clears throat> and that's you know, how God uses his word. His word is so, so powerful, so impactful, and you know, he will use it in ways that we can't imagine I remember early on when I started writing that Bible study and handing it out, and I would watch legislators, you know, they go to the post office and get their mail, and it's a stack like this of, of mail that they get almost on a daily basis, the amount, of, the, amount of, the amount of paper that gets thrown in the garbage in the Capitol. Um, and they would go to the garbage can, and that's how they would sort their mail, right? And... <clears throat> And I was wondering, okay, so I spent a lot of time preparing that and writing it, and uh, is it just going in the garbage with everything else? And, it, and, and it's not. I have seen so many times where legislators, they'll clear their desk, and it's the last thing that's left. And I'll see them reading it as they wait for session to start. Um, legislators that have told me that they take it home and they read it with their spouse, um, so that proclamation of the word is um, something that I don't know that I will ever know the extent of, of how God is using it, but I do know that it is being used. 
And so the proclamation of the word is so important to change hearts and minds. And so this morning, I want to share with you from Psalm 19. So Psalm 19 is a psalm, really, on the sufficiency of the word of God. And we can take great comfort as we read this psalm in the scripture that we have. And as you guys were doing your VBS thing up here, I was seeing, seeing some, some, some parallels to what you guys were going through uh, in VBS this week as in, and in Psalm 19 as well. And just thankful for the ministry of Answers in Genesis and their uh, defense of the Word of God and all that they do uh, in that realm. So Psalm 19, let us read that together. It says, The heavens are telling of the glory of God, and their expanse is declaring the work of his hands. Day to day pours forth speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words. Their voice is not heard. Their line has gone out through all the earth, and their utterances to the end of the world. In them he has placed a tent for the sun, which is as a bridegroom coming out of his chamber. It rejoices as a strong man to run its course. Its rising is from one end of the heavens and its circuit to the other end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true. They are righteous altogether. They are more desirable than gold, yes, than much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned. In keeping them there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Acquit me of hidden faults. Also keep back your servant from presumptuous sins. Let them not rule over me. Then I will be blameless, and I shall be acquitted of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Between my sophomore and junior year of college, some of you maybe even remember this. I spent eight weeks in Papua New Guinea. And hundreds of missionaries live in Papua New Guinea. Besides all the translators working on translation uh, in the many tribes uh, throughout the region, there's a large number of support staff. Teachers, pilots, mechanics, nurses, accountants, carpenters, and others are all living there for the purpose of translating a book. Why is the translation of a book into another language so important? Why would so many people leave their home, family, friends, wealth to spend a lifetime in a foreign land so that the people living there could have access to one book? That's a lot of effort for one book. And of course, that book is the Bible. And it's so special. We understand it uh, to be uh, so important to us that it is God's word revealed to us that we would spend millions of dollars and spend lifetimes translating that book so that someone else could read it. Without God choosing to reveal himself, we would have no knowledge of him. And that's why the Bible is so important. It is God's word. 
It is God's self-revelation to us. It is through the Bible that we come to know God, salvation, God's will, how we are to live our lives. The word of God in our culture is under attack. It has been under attack from the beginning. You guys looked at Genesis this week. In Genesis, early chapters of Genesis, Satan says to Eve, has God said? And he's He's still doing that. Has God really said? And throughout history, the church has affirmed the sufficiency and authority of Scripture. Starting in the 18th century, though it came under attack by German philosophers, it has been under attack ever since. Even today, it is under attack in our culture. And the latest attack seems geared around the clarity of Scripture. In order to acquiesce to the LGBTQ agenda, there are those who say the Bible is unclear or outdated when it comes to issues of sexuality or life. There are many who are and will bend the knee to our culture instead of standing on the sure word of God. There is a confrontation in America between the word of God and the sexual revolution that will grow and cause many to fall away. Even in the legislature, it is the social and moral issues that are often the most contentious the fire rages hottest when these issues come up. It is hard for some to stand firm on a biblical understanding of these things, and we need to pray for them as they face pressure to go along with the world. As we look at Psalm 19 this morning, <clears throat> there is a section in there that really focuses on the Word of God. We're going to look at the whole Psalm, Psalm 119, in which God shows three ways in which he reveals himself to us. There's general revelation, and there's special revelation, and, and then there is um, the conscience that we will see in the end of that psalm. Under special revelation is Jesus Christ himself as the full revelation of God. So general revelation includes all of nature, creation, providence and history it's without a word jesus is the exact representation of god the word became flesh and dwelt among us you, if you have seen me you have seen the father jesus said i and my father are one but only a very few people saw jesus in person we know him through scripture so special revelation includes christ special general revelation tells us that he is there there are limited things that we can know about God from creation. A certain of his attributes are displayed through what he has created. General revelation reveals enough to condemn, but not enough to save. We need special revelation to tell us how to be right with God. We need special revelation to tell us how we are to live. It is with words. Know that, God, that it is the word of God that created general Revelation. Our te text contains the most succinct teachings on Scripture in the Bible. It is an amazing text on itself, on the sufficiency of God's Word. It is Psalm 119 in miniature. The psalm can easily be broken into three parts. God speaking through nature, general revelation, verses 1 through 6. God speaking through His Word, verses 7 through 11. And God speaking through our conscience, verses 12 through 14. As part of that trip to Papua New Guinea, we took a part 
in a New Testament dedication on a smaller island, New Britain. Here we were in the jungle on a remote island just south of the equator. At night, the heavens really did declare the glory of God. The starry host sang his praises. There's no artificial light. I remember walking between an area with several huts where the translators lived to a hut down the path in the jungle a quarter mile away, something like that, I don't remember, with just a flashlight and the, and the sky. And the sky was different there. Can't find the Big Dipper. South of the equator, the stars you can see are different than the stars you can see north of the equator. So constellations like the Big Dipper that I was used to finding in the night sky, they're not there. There was the Southern Cross. And so just the vastness of the sky and how splendid is God's story, starry host. David must have had many such experiences as well as he spent his youth out in the fields watching his father's sheep. David begins this psalm extolling God because of the world he has created. David saw creation as a way that God declared himself. It is obvious as one spends time outside under the starry heavens that the universe and all its vastness was created by a marvelous God. The psalmist says, The heavens are telling of the glory of God, and their expanse is declaring the work of his hands. General revelation includes all of God's creation. We could consider micro-creation, the intricacies of the human hand or the eye and how it functions with the brain, the complexities of an atom. But David picks a piece that is universal for all people in all places. The heavens are so obvious that they cannot be ignored. As one stands outside and observes the heavens at night, you are left with the undeniable truth that there is a creator. David says, they tell, they declare. How glorious must be the God who created the heavens. How skilled must be the hands of the creator who can hang all the heavens on nothing. Their expanse. Our knowledge of the universe is ever expanding. Thanks to new technologies, we can see things never dreamed of before. NASA just released new images of galaxies that we have never seen before. There are believed to be more than 200 billion stars in the universe. The expanse of the universe seems to be without end, as in fact still expanding. And David says, day to day pours forth speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. The testimony of the universe God created is never ending. Day after day, Night after night, creation declares the glory of God. For most people throughout history, the night sky was a fixture of their existence. Each night, the heavens declare the glory of God. Many of you, us as well, live where there is little artificial light, and we can go out at night and enjoy the brilliant display of the stars. All of creation, from the micro to the macro, is constantly declaring the glory of God. Wherever you look, you find wonders of creation, from small bugs to flowers to majestic mountain peaks, from microscopic particles to the night sky. It is an endless array of wonder that goes on day and night to declare the glory of God. There is no speech, verse 3, nor are there words. Their voice is not heard. 
Creation declares the glory of God without making a sound, without words. The night sky is voiceless, but its testimony is loud and clear and strong. Their line has gone out through all the earth and their utterances to the end of the world. There is no place in the world where the glory of God is not declared by the heavens. You cannot escape the wonders of God's creation. In fact, in remote places like the, Papua, like the jungle of Papua New Guinea, it seems louder. In them, he has placed a tent for the sun, which is as a bridegroom coming out of his chamber. It rejoices as a strong man to run his course. David then, out of the sky, singles out the sun as an example of how creation declares the glory of God. Some of you may have been camping this summer. You slept in a tent. You took a flashlight with you. As you shine that little flashlight in that little tent, it lit up the tent. It, was, it gave you light that you needed to see in that tent. David is saying the sun in all its brilliance is like a candle in a tent compared to the vastness of the universe. The sun beams with radiance like a bridegroom coming out of the bridal chamber. He is glowing. The sun, like a strong man, a super athlete, runs its course. Each day, the sun races across the sky in brilliance. It disappears for a while, but then in the morning, it is glowing and running its course again. Day after day, it runs its course, never waning, never tiring, always running in all its brilliance from one end of its course to the other. Verse 6, its rising is from one end of the heavens, its circuit to the other end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. David moves to describe the circuit of the sun. Here in Psalm 19, David describes the circuit of the sun that we, in, in modern times, have only been able to scientifically explain. It is from one end of the heavens to the other. The sun travels at an amazing speed of 514,000 miles an hour. It is estimated that it would take 225 to 250 million years for the sun to complete its orbit around the center of our galaxy. The sun is so great that nothing can escape from its effects, from the effects of its heat. It warms oceans. It makes crops grow. It thaws the earth. General revelation reveals that there is a creator. Scripture tells us, that the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. We are without excuse when it comes to knowing God exists. General revelation reveals that there is a God. It tells us he is there and something about him, but it is not sufficient to know him and for salvation. It is sufficient to condemn, but not to save. It has been popular lately to say that general revelation and special revelation are both true, and therefore equals. Those that say this generally also use this to justify using science to critique the Bible. And while it is true that general revelation and special revelation are both true, they are not equal. And that is David's point as he now turns to special revelation in this psalm. It is special revelation that critiques general revelation that explains revelation general revelation to us. David turns to special revelation, the word of God, verses 7 through 9. They contain one of the most 
succinct passages of Scripture on itself anywhere in Scripture. There's no wasted space in these verses. They are packed full of truth. Each verse contains two phrases. Each phrase contains a name for Scripture, a description of Scripture, and an effect of Scripture. The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true. They are righteous altogether. Special revelation, God's word, the Bible. There are six names for scripture in these verses. Law, testimony, Precepts, commandments, fear, and judgments. They're all synonyms for the Word of God. There are also six descriptions of the Word. It is perfect, it is sure, it is right, it is pure, it is clean, and it is true. And then David includes six effects of the Word of God. It restores the soul, it makes wise the simple, it rejoices the heart, enlightens the eyes, endures forever, and is righteous altogether. As we look at those six names for Scripture, six different facets of a diamond. The first is law, Torah. This speaks of Scripture's didactic nature. It is intended and designed to teach. It is divine instruction. Scripture teaches about God. Scripture teaches man what man needs to know. It is the owner's manual on life. Genesis and Exodus, for example, are not just some great stories. They teach us about the nature and character of God and what he desires from his creation. The second is testimony. This is the divine witness. Scripture is God giving us his own testimony. If we were to put God on a witness stand, Scripture would be his testimony to who he is, what he desires, what he requires, and what he will do. Precepts. This looks at Scripture as doctrine, a truth, truths and statutes. These are not suggestions or nice ideas. They are not optional. They are absolute principles for behavior, for living life. The truths taught in Scripture are meant to guide us in life. And then it is a commandment. This speaks of Scripture as God's divine decrees. They are sovereign. They are authoritative. They are binding. They are not optional. Disobedience means judgment. Obedience means reward. Man often sets himself up as judge over God's word, but all will find that failure to obey his commands will lead to judgment. And then fear. This is what Scripture produces a healthy reverence and awe of God, respect. This looks at Scripture as the guide to worship. We must worship in spirit and in truth, John 4. Scripture helps us see God for the holy God that he is. And then judgments. These are the divine verdicts of God on man's behavior. What God has determined in his courtroom. God backs up what he says. Scripture contains his commands. Now let's go back through those same verses and look at the six descriptions that David gives us. The first is perfect. This means that it is complete. 
It's, this is different than, than without air. When we think of perfect, we may think of without air, but this is perfect in the fact that it is complete. It is comprehensive. It is all-sided. It covers everything. Nothing is lacking. It is perfect as it is. It doesn't need anything else. You can't take anything away from it, nor can you add anything to it. It is sufficient. It is perfect. We don't need further revelation from God in dreams or visions. God has given us everything we need in his word. There is no need for further revelation. It is perfect. It is also sure. It is reliable, unwavering, unmistakable. It is able to be trusted. It is guaranteed. Peter, in 2 Peter 1.19 says, So we have the prophetic word made more sure. Peter had some pretty amazing experiences in his life. He was on the Mount of Transfiguration. He saw Christ transfigured. But here he says in 2 Peter that there is a more sure word, something greater than his experiences, and that is the sureness of of the word of God, of scripture. It is also right, not just right as opposed to wrong, but the right path, the correct way. Doctrine lays out the right path. Scripture is a light unto my path. This is the right way. Walk in it. It is road signs on the, way, on the maze of life. Everything is measured by this book. Whatever doesn't match up with this book is wrong. It is pure, or better translated, clear. It is easily understood. It has clarity. Scripture is not murky or hard to understand. That is not to say that certain parts of Scripture don't take more work to understand, but the basic message of the Bible is crystal clear. God created, man sinned, man is doomed. God in his love and to display his glory sent Jesus to die in our place and all who repent and believe will be made right with God. The basic message of, this, of scripture is very clear. The New, the New Testament was largely written to a bunch of first generation believing pagans and yet they were expected to understand it. It is clear it's like a clean windshield. You ever drive at night this time of year and, you're, and the bugs are like rain and you, can't see, and you can't see through your windshield? That's not Scripture. Scripture is a clean windshield, one that you can see through clearly. It's understandable. It's not hard to understand, just hard to swallow sometimes. And it is clean. And this means that it is free from error, free from corruption, free from imperfection. It is inerrant. It is pure. Psalm 12, 6 says, The words of the Lord are pure words, as silver tried in a furnace on the earth, refined seven times. Scripture is free from error. And then it is true. God's judgments are true. They are not false. The Scripture is correct. The Bible never gives bad directions. The GPS on your phone will, off, will sometimes lead you astray, send you to the wrong place. God's word is always true. It never fails to be right. These truths 
are not open to discussion. They are true. They cannot be tweaked by the whim of man. And then the word has six effects. First, it restores the soul, the inner person, as opposed to the body. The Bible's intent is to transform the entire inner person, to be renewed by the transforming of your mind. When the soul is transformed, behavior follows. This, in other words, is regeneration. The word converts. It's not the preacher. It's not clever gimmicks. It's not strategy or slick packaging. It is the word of God that transforms sinners. Then it makes wise the simple. The word simple at its root means an open door. The simple-minded person is an, is an open door. There's no discernment. Anything can come in and go out. We would call them gullible. And it is popular for people to say they are open-minded. God says, close the door. There are some things that should be kept out and some things that should be kept in. Scripture is that door. Scripture teaches us what is okay to let into our minds and what we should keep out. Psalm 1 says, How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law he meditates day and night. It makes wise the simple. In Hebrew, wisdom means skill in living, navigating the world with wisdom, knowing what to let in and what to keep out of your life. Scripture takes a simpleton, undiscerning, inexperienced, immature, uninformed, ignorant, and makes them skillful in the living of life. Next, Scripture rejoices the heart. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. True joy comes from following God's word, living according to the Scripture. John, 1 John 1, 4 says, These things are written that your joy may be full. Things cannot bring you true joy. True joy comes from knowing and obeying the word of God. Luke eleven twenty eight. Happy are those who hear the word and obey it. In the midst of difficulty, we can find solace in the word of God. It rejoices the heart. Next, it enlightens the eyes. The commandments are clear, enlightening the eyes. We see the way that God sees. We think the way that God thinks. We are given spiritual understanding. Only believers have access to this. It is through the Spirit that the word is made clear to us. Then it endures forever. What is without defect endures. What is tainted with sin perishes. I spent some time in China as well. And I remember a conversation that always stuck with me with my roommate. Uh, China was undergoing vast change. Uh, economically, specifically, um, culturally, uh, just China and today is still undergoing a vast change. But China was going under just massive change. And as we talked about Scripture, um, his question really was this. What good is the Bible in the face of this massive change? China is just changing overnight. What was 
Yesterday is not today. It's different. The scripture is old. It's outdated. How can it have anything to say to something so different and so changing as China? But scripture was written by an omniscient God. He wrote it so that it would be sufficient in all times and all places. When God wrote scripture, when he wrote the Bible, he knew the changes that would take place in China, the changes that would take place in the U.S., and it was, he made it sufficient for all times and all places. Because it is true, because it is perfect, it endures forever. It produces an enduring result in our lives. And then it is righteous altogether. The true judgments of God produce comprehensive righteousness. Not injustice, not inequity, it produces righteousness. What an amazing gift God has given to us in his word. Notice how many times in this passage it says, of the Lord. It is God's word, pure and simple. It belongs to him. It is his word. It is divine, not human. David now moves from the character of the word to the value of the word. He says, they are more desirable than gold, yes, than much fine gold. Most people pursue wealth or fame or power. God tells us that his word is what is most valuable. It is, after all, his word that reveals to us how we are to be made right with him forever. David says, it is sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. God's word becomes sweet to us. It's not bad-tasting medicine. It is able to revive us. I'm reminded of a story in 1 Samuel 14. It says, Jonathan goes out with his armor bearer to, to battle. He goes out alone. And he goes to battle. He is victorious. But he's wore out. And it, the scripture says that he came upon a honeycomb and he took that honeycomb and it brightened his eyes. And that's the idea that David is, has here. That scripture is sweeter, sweeter also than honey in the drippings of the honeycomb. It brightens our eyes. It revives us. He says, moreover, by them your servant is warned, and keeping them there is great reward. God will reward the one who honors his word. God's word is destined, is designed to warn us, to help us know what is right and wrong, what God desires. It shows us what happens when we do not follow his word. And then part three. David speaks of, of scripture uh, speaking through the conscience. And we see here that there's some parallels with Romans 1 and 2. In Romans 1, we read, Because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, that is, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived, being understood by what has been made, so that they are without excuse. That's what we read in the first six verses. In Romans 2, it says, For all, have sin- for all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law. So we have scripture, the law. 
For when Gentiles who do not have the law instinctively perform the requirements of the law, these, though not having the law, are a law to themselves, in that they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience testifying and their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them. So we see the conscience in, in Romans, and we see now the conscience in Psalm 19. Who can discern his errors? Acquit me of hidden faults. The Bible is quite frank with us. It helps us turn around when we err. It keeps us from sin, and therefore sin does not rule in our lives. Verse 13, also keep back your servant from presumptuous sins. Let them not rule over me. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against you. The word of God, studied, understood, believed, and applied, will keep you from sin, and sin having control in your life. When these things are done, then you will be blameless and without great transgression. Scripture brings us to repentance, and God is faithful to forgive. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. David ends on a prayer. It's reminiscent of Joshua 1.8. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have success. David's prayer was that his words, his heart, would be acceptable in God's sight. Scripture is God's special revelation to us. It is sufficient for all of life and practice. All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. David gives us six names for the word of God. Law, testimony, precepts, commandments, fear, and judgments. Six descriptions of the word. It is perfect, sure, right, pure, clean, and true. And it has six effects on us. It restores the soul, makes wise the simple, rejoices the heart, enlightens the eyes, endures forever, and produces comprehensive righteousness. God is revealed through general revelation. God speaks to us through special revelation. We need the word of God. We can and must stand on the rock-solid word of God. It is sufficient for all of life and practice. Whatever this culture may change, whatever this culture may claim, it is the word of God that will stand. It is the word of God that will endure. We need to be like David. We need to desire the word as gold, as much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Let's pray. We hope you've enjoyed today's message. If you would like to know more about Bethesda Church, you can check us out on the web by going to our website, which is BethesdaMB.org. That's Bethesda, M as in Mary, B as in boy, dot org. Or check us out on Facebook by searching for Bethesda Church of Huron. Have a blessed day.